We have three basic announcements. First of all, try to remember on Saturday night that uh, the uh, you need to set your clocks forward one hour in order to be uh, prepared because we're having daylight savings time beginning that morning. So set your clocks one hour forward. That means you're going to lose an hour of sleep. That's always great. It always happens right before the Chafer Conference. We start with a sleep deficit. But the Lord provides. Also, the conference begins March 9th through 11th. On Sunday morning, this Sunday morning, uh, Dr. Alan Ross will be speaking on Sunday morning as sort of a beginning to the uh, conference. So we'll be looking forward to that. Also, we need donations of cookies, canned Coke, Diet Coke, and Dr. Pepper. Uh, Igor Smolyar, who arrived today, particularly fond of uh, Dr. Pepper. You can't get that in too many places in Ukraine. And then men's prayer breakfast will be on Saturday morning, March the 21st. So those things all need to be paid attention to. All right. This I recall to mind and therefore have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. That is a great promise to be aware of today with all of the insane things that are going around from the coronavirus to the elections and everything else that it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. It could be a lot worse, and it might be before all of this is over with, but we have the Lord to trust in, and he is in control. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can make sure that we are spiritually prepared to get into the Word, to study the Word, to be challenged by the Word, and to internalize the Word, that we can hide it in our hearts So we'll begin with silent prayer to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, spiritually prepared, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's such a strength and comfort that we can come to you. We know who you are. We know that you are omnipotent and there is nothing in our life that is uh, impossible for you to deal with. There's nothing that we face that is greater than your power. You are omniscient. You have known everything throughout all of eternity. There's nothing that happens that surprises you. We may be surprised. It may uh, overturn our plans and our, our ideas, our our view of how things ought to be, but you in your omniscience have prepared for everything. You have given us all the resources we need in your word, and you have given us your Holy Spirit who indwells and empowers us so that we can face and surmount uh, every challenge that comes our way with great joy and happiness because we know that we are walking with you and that nothing could be better than serving you and being an ambassador for Jesus Christ in this life. Father, we are thankful that we have your word, the promises of your word, the examples of your word, and that we have the challenges from your word to hide it in our heart that we might not sin against thee. Father, we pray that as we study this evening, you will use your word to challenge us and correct us and stimulate us and teach us, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 3, Psalm 3. And we are going to continue our study of David as he is running from Absalom. This is where we ended the last time. We were in uh, 2 Samuel, and we were dealing with the fact that uh, Absalom was coming into Jerusalem as David was fleeing, and he wasn't moving very quickly, and he was going down the Kidron Valley, working his way up and over the... Uh, Mount of Olives. So he is in the midst of the battle, even though they are not fighting physically at this point. He knows that he is on the run, 
and he is fleeing from his son who is seeking to destroy him, to destroy his life, destroy his kingdom, and he has to turn to God, and so he is turning to God in prayer. I put this picture up to give us an idea of where he was going. This wall that you see here in the right center of the screen is the wall that was built by Suleiman in the, uh, I think it was in the 15th, uh, 15th century, uh, that it roughly follows the contours of the Herodian wall because the lower, the lower stones on it were the stones that were in the, in the wall that was built by Herod. It's the retaining wall around the Temple Mount. And so this is on the Temple Mount here, and the temple was situated there. You see that down below here is the Kidron Valley, and down just past this point, this corner here, you can see a little bit there. That is the old city of David. And so David was had left the city of David. It just covers a very small area here, only a few acres. He's left there. He's working his way along the valley. These trees here on the left are the Garden of Gethsemane. But he's working his way along the valley. And somewhere in the near foreground there, he started to move up to his, what would have been to his right, to our left, up the shoulder of the Mount of Olives. And he hasn't gone very far, but uh, Absalom and his forces are right behind him. But Absalom wants to secure his position in Jerusalem so he doesn't take advantage of the situation and pursue David. He very easily uh, could have. So this is the scenario. David is running from Absalom close friends and advisors have gone over to the dark side of the Absalom conspiracy and the Absalom rebellion. He is has been betrayed. He has been lied to. He has been deceived by not only his son, but, but by many close friends, men he would have depended upon. And now he must face the fact that he and uh, his, his uh, men, close friends, close men to him, and his uh, family have to flee from Absalom. And how is he going to handle this crisis? And this is a situation that has great implications for all of us because we may not be uh, in the exact same situation. We have all faced situations where we have been uh, betrayed, we have been deceived, we have been lied to, we have had people who we thought were close to us uh, turn against us. We have all been in situations and will be in situations where we face uh, various uh, adversaries and adversities. And this is a great psalm, a wonderful psalm to encourage us and to give us some great uh, principles for how to surmount these challenges and have a relaxed mental attitude in the midst of an overwhelming uh, crisis. So have your Bibles open to Psalm 3. We'll work our way through this psalm uh, verse by verse as as we begin. The opening superscription is part of the original text and gives us the historical situation. It is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And so this tells us right away what the situation is. It is grounded in a historical event. Now, there are a lot of psalms that many believe fit within this period. Uh, One we'll look at a little bit is Psalm 27, but also I think I believe it's Psalm 64 and some others could very easily fit this this, uh, same Uh, same scenario. And the uh, verb that is used here for fleeing is the verb barach. It is similar. It's not the word barach, which means uh, to create, which is, has a, the only difference between the two is about three millimeters on the uh, left leg of the left letter there. That's a hate because it's closed, which is pronounced like a ch. It's a deep guttural 
as opposed to bara, which is spelled with a an aleph at the end. Uh, they sound very much alike, but this word has the idea of fleeing, means to run away. It's an extremely dramatic word emphasizing the calamity that has come upon David. And whenever we think of a calamity and a crisis coming upon David, we should also be thinking about the great promise that God gave David in terms of the covenant that he made with David. Now, I don't believe that at this point God had given that covenant. We discussed that when we were in Second Samuel 7, that this information wasn't given in chronological order, that the covenant is not given until uh, we're closer to the end of David's life, that despite all of his failures, all his flaws, his sins, everything, God blessed him with that tremendous uh, covenant. But what we do know is that God knew God, I mean, David knew that God had appointed him and anointed him to be the king over Israel. God had not taken that away from him. God had uh, specifically indicated his forgiveness because of the sin with Bathsheba. And so David could have confidence that this was not going to be the end of his reign. But he had to come to that. He's just like you and I are. He is concerned about, well, has God somehow left me or departed me? It's easy to get your eyes on circumstances and on the problems rather than on the solution. And so he would have become concerned as to whether or not he's actually going to uh, survive this. Now, this psalm was written, I believe, by David as he is fleeing. He's, he's, it, these thoughts are coming to his mind. Uh, David was a, a, a brilliant man. He had a tremendous insight into uh, Scripture, into p- writing poetry, writing the lyrics of Scripture. He is, of course, uh, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. But some people think, that that's just something that immediately appeared in someone's mind. It might have, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't a process, that the writer wouldn't have gone through the normal process of writing, uh, correcting, editing what he is writing, and so that the final product when he's finished is that which was intended by God. So David is leaving, and he's thinking these thoughts as he is going up the Mount of Olives and reflecting upon what is God doing in my life? What is happening? How in the world did I get here? And we see this in the opening verse when he turns to God in prayer, and he says, Oh, oh, oh Lord, how my ad- adversaries have increased, how many are rising up against me. And this is a cry of desperation. Lord, how did this happen? How did all of a sudden so many uh, opponents rise up against me? They're just exploding and multiplying, and I'm betrayed, and so many of my friends have gone over to Absalom, and and he's expressing his problem here. And that's an important thing to remember in prayer is there's no uh, conflict in our spiritual life in expressing the uh, the situation, the desperation that we face sometimes when all of a sudden we come face to face with problems and challenges and difficulties in our life. A lot of Christians get the idea that, well, I'm not supposed to think that this is overwhelming. So you're going to lie to God. God's omniscient. He knows how scared to death you are. He knows how desperate you are. He knows how dejected or depressed you might be. And so often we come to God like, oh, I'm this great Christian and I'm going to claim these promises. And God God is just looking at us and chuckling and saying, well, you're trying to pull the wool over my eyes again, but I, I know you better than you know yourself. And so what we see again and again in these lament psalms, for that's the kind of category we have here where the psalmist is coming to God with a problem, that he he's honest. He he tells God exactly how he feels. If he's upset with God, he feels uh, as if God has somehow forgotten about him. He expresses that to God. There is an honesty there. And as we are honest with the problem in our life, with ourselves, then and only then are we able to honestly and accurately apply Scripture to, to the situation and, and to the problem. 
So this is, a, this is a psalm that addresses and models for us how you move from focusing on the problem and the circumstances to focusing on God, the God who is greater than the problem and the circumstances. There's another thing that is also uh, interesting I want to bring up as sort of a background to this is that this psalm, Psalm 3, was written by David in approximately uh, 1,000 B.C. The, the, the Psalter, now that's not a salt shaker, P-S-A-L-T-E-R. The Psalter, the book of Psalms, is not compiled until after the Jews come back from captivity, which is in uh, five, roughly 537 B.C. So this is almost 500 years 450 to 500 years after David wrote this this psalm. So he didn't write them in order. Now we know that Psalm 1 because it's uh, and Psalm 2 are both uh, written by David because of uh, statements that are made in in the New Testament even though there's no superscription uh, that is given there. Uh, but now we have a superscription and it's identified as a psalm of David. In fact, in the the Psalms are divided into five books. They're organized. I'm not going to go into the details, but there's a clear structure that was used by the uh, the, the editors, as it were, of the of the Psalms, that shows that they were doing this under the inspiration of Scripture. That there is a structure and an order. It's common uh, for people to think of the Psalms as just a loose collection of of the psalms or hymns that were sung in the temple temple service, but they, there is an order and a structure to the way that they are are laid out, and there are certain connections. I alluded to this when we went through Psalm two in the Ephesians study on Sunday morning uh, about five or six weeks ago. That there's internal connections if you read them through in the Greek. I'm excuse me if you read them through in the Hebrew what you will see is a repetition of certain words and certain ideas. And you see that the first, the, the first psalm uh, talks about the contrast between the man who is blessed, who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of the sinners or sit in the seat of the scoffers. And it ends with the Lord knowing the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And then Psalm 2 talks about how the wicked, that is the kings of the earth, are in conspiracy against God to throw off his reign, to throw off his rule, and God is laughing and scoffing at them in the heavens, and he, in, in, um, uh, in order to defeat them, installs his king, the Messiah, upon Zion, and gives him the kingdom as his inheritance and so that he can take the earth as his possession, and that's in Psalm 2.8. And it ends in Psalm uh, 2.12 with the statement, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. So Psalm 1, 1 begins, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, and it ends, how blessed are all who take refuge in him, and that these two psalms historically, although not by contemporary scholarship, were seen as being uh, integrally connected to one another. Psalm 3 is also connected to that theme of the Messiah. So you have the Messiah present in Psalm 1 as the one uh, who is represented by this man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. He is the one who is installed as the king on Mount Zion. He is the one who uh, uh, who uh, defeats the enemies of God. And then we see an example in uh, Psalm 3 of David as the anointed king, the messianic king, he is not the Messiah, but he is the anointed king. Messiah means the anointed one. And in this chapter, it, it depicts the hostility and opposition to uh, the Messiah uh, to, and to David as the messianic king and as the forerunner of the Messiah. And we'll, I'll point out several times going through here where you see 
similarities, close, tight similarities between what David says in Psalm 3 and what our Lord Jesus Christ uh, went through. So there is a strong argument that has been made that Psalm 3 is tightly connected to Psalm 1 and 2 and that Psalm 3 is also messianic. In fact, I, I haven't I don't know that I buy into it at all. I would take probably more time than I have in my life to study it. But there are arguments that almost every psalm is messianic. And that has not been popular for 150 years. But that certainly was a much older view and was probably the view in the, in the early church. So Psalm 3, the superscription begins, a psalm of David... 37 of the 41 psalms in the first book of the psalms are ascribed to David specifically. And so if we add Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, that's 39 of the 41. And I would bet that there's a really good chance that the other two, even if they are not, do not have a specific attribution of Davidic authorship, that they were probably authored by David as well. When we come to the psalm itself, it easily breaks down into three basic sections. There are eight verses in, the, in, in this psalm. A theme that appears is the theme of deliverance, the theme of deliverance. And so this, we'll, we'll have to study the word for deliverance, which is the, the verb is yasha, which is often translated saved, but we often think that saved always means justification or regeneration. In the Psalms, that is not its normal meaning. There may be a few places where it has that sense of a spiritual deliverance, but most of the time it's talking about a physical uh, deliverance or rescue from a situation or circumstance. We have the noun uh, Yeshua, which is the form of Jesus' name. Uh, Yesh- Jesus' name is, in the Aramaic, was Yeshua, the one who would save his people from their sins. And so that uh, you have the noun in verse 2, where those who are opposed to David are saying, and ridiculing him and scoffing at him and saying, well, there's no deliverance for him in God. And then you come down to uh, David's petition, his supplication to God in verse 7, Arise, O Yahweh, save me. That's the verb yasha. And then he concludes by saying that Yeshua, salvation, belongs to Yahweh. And so this is a major theme that we see in this, uh, in this psalm. It easily breaks down into three sections. The first two verses, David expresses an anxious and fearful surprise that his adversaries who seek to destroy him have increased so rapidly. He is stunned by this. He is caught, as the British would say, on his back foot. He is not expecting this. He knew that, that Absalom was causing trouble, But this has happened very, very quickly, and the number of his friends and associates and counselors that have gone over to to, uh, Absalom has has stunned him. And this is something that that reminds me of the language in James chapter 1. James chapter 1 says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And that word for various... Uh, indicates the, the, a variety of, uh, of these different trials, and the idea of encountering them is, is the idea of something that suddenly comes upon you. You're not expecting it. Everything seems to be going well. Uh, you're, you're counting on how things are going to continue with a certain level, level of stability and certainty, and all of a sudden the coronavirus shows up and, and half your trips get canceled and it begins to impact your uh, uh, 401k uh, plan and everything else, and it just it just suddenly uh, suddenly transpired, and who knows how that's going to affect things. I have a sense that it's it's we're just seeing the beginning of this, 
and we're not at the we're not even at the end of the beginning yet. Uh, we're just at the beginning of the beginning. We don't know how it's going to develop or how uh, serious it will be. I have a sense that uh, for most people, it's no more dangerous than a common cold or flu. But we all know that around, or we should know that around 60 or 70,000 people a year worldwide die from the flu. If you've got underlying health problems, and if you're older, then you're more at risk than if you're uh, young and strong and don't have any, any, any health problems. So I think that this is going to, especially in China, is going to have a lot of unintended ramifications and some that are foreseen and some that are not foreseen just because of the disruption of the supply chain. Uh, it, it's amazing. I've read art, so many articles over the last week or so how many products that we use that where one component, it may be assembled in the U.S., 90% of the uh, what goes into it may be coming from other countries, but some critical component comes out of China. And so all of a sudden we don't have access to that, then we're going to start seeing a lot of problems in the supply chain and a lot of things that we take for granted, a lot of comforts that we have, medications that we're used to, I've read that it, this can have a tremendous impact on uh, blood pressure medication and on various other uh, medications. It, it'll, it'll have an impact on just about any kind of, of technology that we have because there are certain metals that are critical to computers that will not be, uh, may not be provided for weeks or months. And this may really shut down and impact the accessibility to certain cell phones and to um, tablets and to computers and things like that. We just don't know. There's, there's more unknowns than known. But we should not panic. Saturday, I don't know if any of you tried to go to Costco. I'm not going to have a show of hands. If any of you tried to go to Costco over the weekend... Went into Costco just to pick up a few things, got back. No, that was Sunday after church because I got back Friday, flew up to Dallas after I got back here Friday and did a wedding up there Saturday afternoon, flew back here Saturday night. Did not know what time zone I was in until after church on Sunday and went to Costco. They were sold out of paper products, toilet paper, paper towels, Kleenex, and water. Now, you would think that we were facing a hurricane the way water was going out of, out of Costco, but there's this panic. And a lot of the people that I saw, not all of them, but maybe two-thirds, were Koreans from this area. And, of course, uh, Korea has a second highest number of people who have the coronavirus. Do you know how they got the coronavirus got into Korea? Uh, Pastor Young told me about this the other day, that there is a cult. They worship some oddball Messiah, not anything related to Christianity or Jesus Christ. There is a large cult in China, I mean in Korea, and they had a large mission in Wuhan where the coronavirus started. And in December, when people started getting sick in Wuhan, they left, but they were already infected. And so they brought the coronavirus back to uh, South Korea. And when he told me this, I guess he sent me an email on Friday. He said 80% of the Koreans that have this, the coronavirus are members of that cult. And I saw a news report, I think it was Sunday or Monday night, that said that there was some th thought about uh, uh, bringing the leader up on murder charges for what they've done, which I think that that's absurd. That's another issue. So anyhow, we have all of this going on here. We have uh, the largest, I've been told by Koreans, it's the largest Korean population outside of Korea here in, in Houston. So in the, in the center of the Korean business community is Long Point between Blaylock and, and Gessner. So I live right in the middle of that. So you go over to Costco over there off of uh, Bunker Hill, and it just I went in there this morning. I had to go in for a totally different reason and wasn't even thinking about that and got there about 10.30, 30 minutes after they had opened, and 
there were just, I couldn't believe the crowds. The parking lot was full like it was Christmas. And one after another, these people are flooding out of Costco. They've gotten what they came for. They're pushing one or in some cases two carts filled to the max. One cart would be filled with as many bottles of water as they could put into it, and the other one is filled with as many as much Kleenex and toilet paper. And then I happened to be on Facebook yesterday, and Bryce's sister posted that she went to a Costco up there in Oregon and saw the same thing happen. And then other people were coming in and say they saw it. Now, it's not happening at HEB. It's not happening at other stores. I saw no evidence of that, but at Costco, it's just insane. It's panic. And the worst thing we can do when we are faced with uh, adversity and adversaries is to panic and to operate on, on fear. Of course, that's what's happening in the stock market as well. You have a lot of panic selling and uh, people running on emotion because they don't want to lose everything they have there. And so this is what we see in the first two verses is David expressing his anxiety, his fear, because all of a sudden his problems are multiplying like crazy, and his adversaries seek, adversaries seek to destroy him, uh, and they just continue to increase. So he expresses his dismay at that, and that's covered in verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 through 5, the second major division, David expresses his confidence in God, uh, which results in his relaxed mental attitude in the midst of this battle. We have to understand that we are in a battle. We are in a spiritual battle, whether we want to be or not. Some people are AWOL and in their Christian life, but they're still in the battle. They're just terrible casualties. Others just want to try to ease their way through life without too many disruptions. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, You are in the battle, and you are a target for Satan, who is our greatest adversary. So David now expresses his confidence in God. You see that shift in his mental attitude and the result of that, and that's covered in verses 3 through 5. And then the third division, David expresses his confidence in God and that God will deliver him and God will destroy his his enemies, and that's in verses 6 through 8. So in the first division, there's two subdivisions. In verse 1, David cries out to God in prayer. Whenever you read something in the Scriptures and in the Psalms where the psalmist is saying, I cried out to God, uh, he is praying, and there's a certain element of of desperation in that. He is crying out to God. It is not just saying he says to God, he quietly prays to God, he is crying out to God. There's a, It's dramatic that they are in a pressure situation. And we'll see that's exactly what, they, what the Hebrew words d- describe here is a pressure situation. And he cries out to God in prayer because of his adversaries and adversities. And then in the second verse, we see what his enemies are doing. They're making fun of him. They're ridiculing him, and they are saying that God's not going to help you. Uh, you know, it reminds us of what happens, uh, what the uh, Roman soldier said and what the one thief said on, on, um, at the time of Christ's crucifixion, that there's no help for him in God. If he was really God, why couldn't he get down off the cross and save himself? And here we have the ridicule from David's uh, uh, adversaries. There's no deliverance for him in God. So there are certainly these uh, messianic overtones to what we see here in, in Psalm 3. Now, as we look at the first verse, he cries out to the Lord, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. He is focusing on Uh, the trouble. He is focusing on the difficulty, and he's talking about how it has dramatically increased. And I've underlined in the slide the word increased and the word many. They are from cognate words in the Hebrew. The increased is from the verb rabab, 
and the uh, the noun is the translated the word many that is rav. So one is r a b a b pronounced the b is pronounced soft like a v, and the other one is just r a b. So you can see the uh, similarity down here. But that that is one of the ways the writers of scripture show this this connection here. So his enemies are increasing and they've become many. They they trouble him and they rise up against him. And the second uh, word that we ought to focus on here is this word to rise up against uh, David. It is the Hebrew word kum, which has a, it has a range of meanings, anything from getting up in the morning to someone taking a stand against someone. And so we see the same word in chapter 2, verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord. And so it's that same idea. This is one of the things that connects Psalm 3 to Psalm 2 in terms of its language. Many are standing up or rising up against me. And we'll see this appear again when we get down to verse 7. He describes the problem. Many rise up against me. What's the solution? He calls upon God in verse 7. Rise up. Save me, O my God. It's the same word. So you can connect those dots. In uh, English, it's rising up in three one, and in uh, verse 7, it is arise. So you can uh, connect those two words together. Uh, that's that shows the uh, structure of this particular particular psalm. So he says, "Many are those who rise up against me. How are they who trouble me?" That's in the first stanza. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Trouble. I should have underlined that instead of rise up. Uh, this is the uh, Hebrew word tsar. Uh, the first letter is like a TZ, Tsar, and it means an adversary or an enemy. What's interesting is the Greek Septuagint, when it translates it, uses a verb where it's a noun to, in, the, in the Hebrew, translates it with a participle, thlebo, uh, which is the word that is normally translated tribulation in the New Testament. So this is talking about the fact that we as believers go through tribulation, not capital T tribulation, not the tribulation, not Daniel's 70th week, but we go through difficulties, we go through adversities. And Thlebo has that idea, it's a very good word for translating SARS, I'll show you in a minute, it has that idea of crushing or compressing someone. When you feel like you're in a tough situation, we say in English that we're hemmed in. Uh, we're in another word that we use is as we say we're in a bind, and that's also a meaning of these words is to bind something, to be wrapped up, to be enclosed in something. We're we're squeezed by our circumstances and situations. In fact, the verb form of tsar is the. Uh, Hebrew word sarar, which means to bind, to be in a narrow place, to be in distress or in a tight place. It can refer to being besieged in a military, uh, in a military context. So what David is saying here is that I am being put in a bind. I am being besieged by these enemies. I am in distress. And being in, and they are the enemy that is our uh, our adversary. So we all face adversaries. It's interesting that these these words are used in reference to the fight against God and against His Messiah, especially in Isaiah, and that again shows a messianic connection. In Isaiah 124, uh, therefore the Lord, that is Adonai says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Yahweh Tzabaoth, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will rid myself of my ad- adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. This is in a prophecy at the beginning of Isaiah. 
And so this it foreshadows God defeating his enemies, the kings of the earth that oppose him. And of course, that's the theme in Psalm 2, the Messianic Psalm there. Psalm 59, 18. Now, when you get past Psalm 59 to 60, 61, 62, 63, 45, in, in uh, 66 in Isaiah, this really focuses on the end times. The, there's a lot of information there about the time of the uh, tribulation when the Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom, and then information about that, that kingdom. So we read in Psalm 59, 18, according to their deeds, this is referring to those who have opposed God historically, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, uh, recompense to his enemies, the coastlands he will fully repay. Now, when you read the word coastlands, what do you think of? You think of a couple of islands off the coast. That's not what it, it refers to by, it, by uh, Israel in the Old Testament in the Hebrew. You had Egypt, you had uh, areas, the Hittites in the north, you had the Greeks, if it went beyond the Greeks and the Romans, it was the coastlands. Everything that went beyond, that were the islands out there in the seas, the islands out there in the ocean, all the way, that would include North America, South America, all of that would be part of what they thought of as the coastlands. So when it says recompense to his enemies, the coastlands he will fully repay, that's talking about everything that is beyond the immediate eyesight from Israel, everything to the west, everything that goes throughout the rest of the world. Isaiah 64, 2, as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, that's, that's pretty certain, to make your name known to your adversaries that the nations may tremble at your presence. So this word adversary that David uses in Psalm 3, 1 is one that the Holy Spirit uses to remind people of those who oppose God. The ones who oppose David are the same ones that are in opposition to God, and it reminds us of the rebellion of the kings of the earth in Psalm uh, 2 2. As we go through some of these other references to uh, adversaries in the scripture, we see another psalm that does not have a historical attribution. It doesn't identify it as a historical context. It is a psalm of David, and that is Psalm 27.1. And I was looking at that today, and I thought, this is such a great psalm. There are some great promises that we ought to memorize in these psalms that we can recite them when we face difficulties and challenges. At the beginning of that psalm, David writes, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? So that indicates there's a context where David is afraid. And he's reminding himself that Yahweh is his light and salvation. Why should he be afraid of anything? Why should you and I ever be afraid of what might happen? The worst that can happen is that we die and then we're face to face with the Lord. We're here on a mission and we need to trust the Lord whatever that mission is. I heard today, and I wish I could show this to the congregation, but I may look at this and may be able to do this, but it was a Pakistani uh, missionary. I've heard his name here or there, and I've never really connected it. I get a lot of emails from uh, people in Pakistan and people in Africa. I have no idea who they are. We usually send them to Moses Anwabika or somebody else to vet them. But I have no clue who these people are. They just they just send me emails, and I've seen his name, and have finally heard that he's he's a good solid guy, and he has started a number of churches. He's Pakistani. Started a number of churches in Pakistan, and um, in Pakistan, if you are a Christian, you get the worst jobs. For example, you get to clean out the sewers, but you're walking in the sewers with the sewage up to your neck. And so these, he said, what's amazing in these, this film that, that this uh, uh, pastor uh, showed is the joy of these believers, that they're having to live in these horrible circumstances, yet they have the joy of the Lord. And we're all spoiled that if we just get a hangnail, we're complaining and griping to God about how bad life is. And we have no clue how bad it can be. And so 
This is what the Lord talks about, that he has given us his joy, and that's the joy that sustained him on the cross. Uh, He faced the adversity of the cross for the joy that was set before him in Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So David is saying in Psalm 27, 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? There's no reason for me to ever be afraid, ever to be anxious, ever to be worried, ever to let the details of life become an issue to set me off balance. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Who's more powerful than God? He's omnipotent. Who's, who knows more than God? He's omniscient. Uh, who's omnipresent? No one but God. Verse 2, when the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and my foes, they stumbled and fell. I think that pretty much fits the Absalom situation, but we can't say for sure. Verse 3, though an army may encamp against me, which it did when he was opposed by Absalom, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise up against me, in this I will be confident. And then when we get to the end of that psalm, David says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Now, what he's saying there is don't take the enemies away, but give me guidance so that when I have to uh, uh, thread the path between my enemies that you give me guidance, you will direct my ways, direct my steps. Uh, because of my enemies. Verse 12, do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So he's talking about being in the land of Israel, the promised land, and that he would be there. And I think this fits the Absalom rebellion because it, it, it suggests to me that he knew that he would be restored to the throne and restored to the kingdom. And then he concludes the psalm, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. So when we think about adversity and adversaries, we have three basic adversaries in the Christian life. The first one is our adversary, the devil. First Peter 5, 8 should be a well-known verse to all of us. Be sober, which doesn't mean to avoid alcoholic beverages. Just be be clear-headed. Think objectively. Think in terms of the reality as it's described in the Word of God. Be vigilant, watchful, be on the alert, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And the word there is antidikos. So it has to do with someone who is in opposition, an opponent, an enemy, and a foe. And so he is is our foe. And it may not be the devil directly who is opposing us because the devil has uh, millions of demons at his disposal who he can dispatch, who can be more directly involved in uh, dealing with and tempting different beliefs. If you've never read the C.S. Lewis book, Screw tape letters. I suggest that you read that. He had a great insight into uh, into how demonic temptation worked. And the situation there is all fictional, but it has a ring of truth to it. Where you have an older demon who is training a younger his nephew, who's a younger demon, who is just a novice, and the older demon is writing these letters to him to tell him and to give him advice as to how to have victory over the enemy. You and I are the enemy in this scenario. How to have victory and how to successfully uh, distract and tempt uh, individual believers. And you probably won't like to read it because it will make you uncomfortable because he strikes pretty close to home in many of those those letters. But it's, uh, it's a good, insightful read. So the first... Opponent. The first adversary is the devil. The second is the world system. Jesus spoke of this in John sixteen thirty three when he said these things, and he's referring to what he's been teaching them in John thirteen fourteen and fifteen and the first part of sixteen. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. 
That's an interesting scenario. Yesterday, I was listening to one of the breakout sessions from the APAC conference. They're putting a lot of those on video, and uh, if depending on certain circumstances, you can have access to them, which which we have. And they had uh, three experts in the security of of Israel on the northern border, uh, up in Galilee, and dealing with Hezbollah in the north, in Lebanon and Syria. And they've got three hostile borders. They've got Hamas down in Gaza, and they've got Hezbollah, the Syrian border, and the um, the Lebanese border up north. And they're describing all of these missiles, and they have some highly sophisticated uh, GPS-guided missiles now that the Iranians have provide, provided Hezbollah with. And so they have uh, Rouhani has made it clear that they have uh, targeted these uh, Israel with these missiles. They have them targeted at civilian sites. They have the, the Knesset targeted. They have Ben-Gurion Airport targeted. They have several uh, uh, highly populated areas in Tel Aviv targeted. They have uh, other areas that are high-tech, uh, where their high-tech industry is located. And so all of this is already programmed into these missiles, and they're they're just ready to go, and they have a plan where they can uh, send about three thousand missiles a day into Israel, which would completely overwhelm Iron Dome and uh, 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 David's uh, sling and the Arrow uh, defense systems. And you just listen to this, and I thought, I, every time they said something, I thought, if I were not a believer, knowing that Jesus Christ controls history. I would be leaving Israel in a heartbeat. It is, it, we live in a very, very scary world. And God, yet God is in control. And I just think it's rather ironic that the upper echelons of Iranian government are being uh, infiltrated by the coronavirus. It's almost like God is, is taking a hand in things to slow things down. But the Iranians have been working to create a, a a highway between Tehran going across Iraq and Syria to Hezbollah in, in, in Lebanon. And they've been sending these weapons. And if you keep pay attention, you'll know that there have been many, many, many times over the last six or seven years that you will hear of some bombing at an airport. You'll hear of some uh, strike that Israel has uh, is allegedly behind in Syria or or Lebanon, where they have been able to isolate where these missiles are, and they take them out in transport. So there, there's just a lot going on. And so uh, can you have peace and stability when everything is falling apart around you? That's what's happening to David. Everything is coming apart. The wheels are coming off of the kingdom. He's having to flee before his son who wants to, to kill him, and yet he is uh, able to turn to God in the midst of this situation. So Jesus says the same thing. In the world, you will have tribulation. Count on it. Bet on it. We live in a fallen world. You're going to have all kinds of adversity, but I have overcome the world. He has given us his peace. In Acts 14.22, the mission of the pastors and those who are traveling with Paul was to strengthen the souls of the disciples, that is, those that they had just recently led to the Lord there in Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Now, we won't enter the kingdom of God until uh, much later when we're in resurrection body, when the Lord returns. But before that happens, we'll go through a lot of tribulation. There are silly people or, or vacuous pastors who have taught that because we won't go the, through the tribulation, we won't through, go through hard times. The Bible doesn't teach that. It says that the tribulation, according to Matthew 24 and according to Daniel, is a time unlike any other time in the history. And we have called that the tribulation. We probably should refer to it by a better term, such as Daniel's 70th week or the time of Jacob's trouble, so it wouldn't confuse people. But some people think, oh, life will be really easy because we don't go through tribulation. 
That's not what the scripture says. We will go through many tribulations. Uh, the way to think about it is in Romans 5, 3, and 4. Not only that, Paul says, but we also glory in tribulations. We exalt in tribulation. We have joy in the midst of testing, James says, because we know that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. If you want to have real stability and hope in your life, you get there through the training ground of perseverance, and that develops character and hope. In Romans twelve ten through 12, Paul says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving pre." preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope. How do you get hope? Going through tribulation, patient in tribulation, and continuing steadfastly in prayer. Second Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, it is God the Father who is the God of all comfort, who comforts us, verse 4, in all our tribulation. The third adversary is our sin nature, 1 Peter 2, 11. Uh, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So this is what we face in terms of adversaries, and one of the worst is our own, our own sin nature. So in Psalm, I, put, I, I reverse this. This should be Psalm 3.1, not 1.3. I had a dyslexic moment. Uh, Lord, how many adversaries have increased? excuse me, Lord, how my adversaries have increased, many are rising up against me. In verse 2, he says, many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. And it's not really the word help. That would be azer. This is the word Yeshua, which means deliverance or rescue. God's not going to help you, David. David, you're toast. Your kingdom's falling apart. You're going to die. God's not going to deliver you or rescue you, and it's all over with. However, David's going to turn around at the end of the psalm and call upon the Lord who they say won't save him, and he will say, Oh, Lord, save me. Salvation begins with the Lord or belongs to the Lord. So this is... Uh, a word that doesn't always mean spiritual salvation in terms of regeneration and justification as we find in the Psalms. In Psalm 62, 1 and 2, we see this. Uh, Truly my soul silently waits for God. Notice how many times in the Psalms faith and hope are related to waiting on the Lord. Truly my soul silently waits for God. Silently means you're not complaining, you're not griping, you're not telling everybody in light of a prayer request that this is something you're going through. Uh, my soul silently waits for the Lord. From Him comes my deliverance from a situation, a circumstance, a problem. This isn't eternal salvation. Psalm 62.2, he only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. This is all spiritual life truth, phase two truth. God is our rock, our, our deliverer. He is our defense. I shall not be greatly moved. Psalm 89.26, which was a prayer we studied based on the Davidic covenant. Uh, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. This is all talking about temporal deliverance and rescue in the midst of uh, of trials. So with that, I think I'm going to end tonight. We have covered the first two verses, and then we will come back next time, which will be in two weeks. Remember, the Chafer Conference begins next Monday afternoon at about one o'clock. And so next Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we will be live streaming the conference all afternoon, Monday, Monday night, Tuesday, Tuesday night, Wednesday, Wednesday night, there will not be Bible class on Thursday night next week. We never have it. The first year we had Bible class on Thursday night, and four or five uh, people managed to drag themselves here and sleep through Bible class because they were completely exhausted from the conference. So we decided it was not a an edifying thing to do to have uh, Bible class that, that uh, fourth night that week. So next week, the Chafer Conference, uh, Alan Ross, Scott Annual will be the two speakers. 
Uh, Andy Woods is also going to be speaking, so there's always one session related to, to Chafer Seminary, but that will be next week. So it will be two weeks from now before we come back to finish our study in Psalm 3. Father, thank you for the fact that we can trust in you. You are our deliverer, our rock. You are our shield. You are our fortress, our high, high tower. You are the one who protects us. You are the one who is omnipotent, omniscient. You know everything there is to know about the problems, the circumstances we face. It's our responsibility to put our eyes, our focus upon you and not on our circumstances or problems. We need to learn to walk by faith on top of the waves and not get our eyes on the waves so that we are overwhelmed and uh, knocked off balance and uh, seek to drown ourselves in our own sorrows and problems. Father, we need to have that peace that passes all understanding. We need to have the joy, no matter how bad things might be, we have joy, and that only comes by truly internalizing your word. And it isn't easy. It's just a step-by-step process, moment-by-moment, day-by-day, year-by-year. Each year we grow incrementally and at times excruciatingly slowly as we uh, mature, but we, we struggle to learn to apply your word and to walk closely with you so that we can realize these blessings in our lives. And we ask that you would really help us, truly help us, enable us to do this. In Christ's name, amen.